Hello, and welcome back to the Outdoor Minimalist Podcast. I'm your host, Meg Carney, and I'm an outdoor and environmental writer and author of the book, Outdoor Minimalist, Wasteless Hiking, Camping, and Backpacking. The Outdoor Minimalist Podcast has the goal to give listeners actionable ways to wasteless hiking, camping, backpacking, and more during every step of their process. Your impact outdoors starts long before you hit the trail and goes beyond leave no trace ethics. You'll learn how to identify sustainable outdoor brands, how to ask hard questions regarding sustainability, and begin to shift and evolve your mindset to integrate minimalism into all of your outdoor pursuits. When we enter wild landscapes, no matter how remote, there is an inherent risk. A risk that we could be injured, that we could encounter a wild animal, become lost, or worst case scenario, we succumb to foul play at the hands of another human. Some of these interactions and scenarios are unavoidable, and even the most seasoned explorers could die in the wilderness. That's why, in episode 98, we are exploring these exact topics. I find that it's essential to have a healthy fear when entering the wilderness. Maybe not a fear, but a mindset at the very least, that it is possible for things to go wrong, and it's important to be prepared for when they do. Although I could likely fill an episode alone (laughs) discussing some of my wild experiences and encounters outdoors, I had the pleasure of sitting down and learning from Andrea Lankford about how not to die in the wilderness. Andrea Lankford is the author of Ranger Confidential, Three Trail Guides, and her upcoming book, Trail of the Lost, The Relentless Search to Bring Home the Missing Hikers of the Pacific Crest Trail. During her career with the National Park Service, Andrea performed law enforcement, search and rescue, wildland firefighting, and wilderness emergency medicine. After leaving the ranger ranks, the accomplished outdoors woman through hiked the entire Appalachian Trail, kayaked from Miami to Key West, and she and her friend, Beth Overton, were the first to mountain bike the 800-mile Arizona Trail. Andrea is now a registered nurse living in Northern California. Adventuring plans on your calendar? Remember to grab your Lava Linens travel towel on your way out the door. Founded by a mother-daughter team, Lava Linens crafts durable, luxurious travel towels as a more sustainable and better performing alternative to microfiber and cotton towels. Powered by flax, hemp, and tensile, they're designed to be by your side for years to come. Use the code OUTDOORMINIMALIST for 15% off your next order. Thanks for joining me on the Outdoor Minimalist podcast today, Andrea. I am a huge fan of your work and your upcoming book, Trail of the Lost. But before we start discussing the book and then some of topics related to it, I would love to learn a little bit more about you and your background. So if you could start just by introducing yourself and telling us how you got involved in outdoor adventure and how it fits into your life now. Okay, thanks for having me on, Meg, and I'm Andrea Lankford. I was born in Tennessee, and I was a big fan of Wild Kingdom. A lot of you young ones won't remember that show, but I always wanted to work in outdoors, so I went and got a forestry degree at the University of Tennessee, and never saw myself working in law enforcement, but I was having a hard time getting a job when I graduated, and I ended up taking a seasonal ranger position at Cape Hatteras National Seashore in 1987 as a law enforcement first responder ranger. And I got hooked and I loved working for the National Park Service. I loved the mission. I helped protect sea turtle nests at Cape Hatteras. And from there, I moved on to Zion National Park, then Yosemite, which was a big Western park, and then the Grand Canyon. So 
when I went to the big parks, it was very exciting, but it was also not what you typically think a ranger does. It's not more than just giving talks and, you know, looking at wildflowers. We were responding to some serious emergencies, serious law enforcement incidences, dealing with crime, trying to protect the visitor from the park and the visitors from each other, and also the park wildlife from all the above. So it was a challenging job, and eventually I got burned out. I felt like many rangers, and that's why I wrote Ranger Confidential, so that people could see the truth behind the scenery of what it's like to be a park ranger. The job wore me down, the lack of support, and the low pay, and the long hours. And so I left in 1999. Then I became a registered nurse. That's awesome. I'm assuming that you kind of carried on doing outdoor recreation as kind of like a hobby in your normal life. Is that true? Yes, that's very true. You know, obviously I got into ranger work because I love the outdoors. I love nature, love being out there. And the job had tainted that a little bit. I saw work instead of fun, right? So after I left the National Park Service, I immersed myself in sort of, I hiked the entire Appalachian Trail. I kayaked from Miami to Key West. I cycled from north of Fairbanks to the Arctic Ocean. Me and another woman, Beth Overton, we were the first to mountain bike a bike pack where you threw bike, the Arizona Trail. And so I hit it. I went full on outdoor adventure back then. Yeah, that's awesome. That sounds like some pretty epic adventures. And since you already mentioned Ranger Confidential, your first book, I think, is that your first book? Well, I wrote three guidebooks, but it's my first narrative nonfiction work. Okay. Since you already mentioned that one and it's relatively popular, most people in the outdoor industry have read it and enjoyed it. But for listeners that haven't heard about it before, but might be interested in it, could you just kind of like give a brief synopsis or just some takeaways that you had from writing that book? Yeah. So in Ranger Confidential, I talked some colleagues and friends of mine to share their stories with me. So I didn't want it to be just about my own experience to the park service. I wanted to bring in other rangers. So everybody saw it was not just me, you know, having this experience. And so I tell the story of several rangers, four, and we just shows all our adventures, some of them grim, some of them hopeful and in the big national parks. And so it's the real stories behind the scenery is what I like to say. And some of the takeaways are, like I said, rangers' jobs a lot harder than people think. And in my opinion, rangers are much more heroic than people think. And also that nature is more dangerous than people think. You know, when you go to the park as a visitor, it seems like Disneyland, right? But when you're there working as a ranger, it feels more like Jurassic Park. Yeah, that seems like a pretty good comparison. And since you've brought it up a couple of times already, and you have a great perspective as a former National Park Service Ranger, what would you say are like some of the biggest hazards to visitors when they are entering national parks or any wilderness area in particular? You know, one of the biggest hazards is sometimes the softest things and it's water in its various forms, raging river, an icy slope, a snowstorm with wind that causes hypothermia. So water is a big problem, not drinking enough water so that you're dehydrated. And at the Grand Canyon, you could even drink too much water so that you have trouble with hyponatremia, which is low blood sodium because you're diluted yourself and your body can't function right. After water, it's probably the hard stuff, you know, the cliffs and falling and rocks falling and trees falling and hitting you. Then you do have some animal hazards. They're not real high on the list, but they exist. And then you have human hazards where there are people with ill intent out in the wilderness taking advantage of people. 
Yeah, so if we are to look at kind of like some of the natural hazards that you mentioned before, how do you think people can better prepare themselves to avoid accidents or things like dehydration and like heat stroke? Yeah, you know, every environment comes with its own unique challenges, like the challenges at the Grand Canyon in the summer are going to be different than on Mount Lassen in the winter, for example. So one thing I like to say is for people to have an expedition mindset. And so when you're going to go on a hike, even just with your family, what could go wrong and have a safety plan for that? Check what the weather is to make sure you're carrying all the proper gear that you would need for those weather conditions. Another way to have the expedition mindset is to think about the survival rule of threes. So you can survive three weeks without food, three days without water, and in a hazard weather conditions, only three hours without shelter. So food, water, and shelter is something you should have with you. And that would help you for if you got lost, for example, or hurt and you broke your leg and you need to wait for somebody to rescue you. If you have food, water, and shelter, you're going to live longer until a ranger, like what I used to be, can come and rescue you. So just think of that expedition mindset, look at your unique environment that you're visiting and what do you need to carry with you so that you have food, water, and shelter. Yeah, I love that expedition mindset. It's easy to remember too. But so on kind of like a different path, more related to the trail of the lost story, when I talk to a lot of women in particular, I do a lot of solo adventures. A lot of times women will be like, I don't know why you are doing that. Isn't it dangerous? Aren't you scared? And a lot of times they'll say the thing I fear the most when I go into the wilderness is not necessarily like the natural hazards or the animals or anything. It's particularly other people, but specifically men. And so in those instances, if people are entering a wild landscape alone or in a small group, especially if you're a woman, do you have any like advice to stay safe with human encounters? Yes, I do. I am a solo hiker and backpacker and I'm a diehard solo hiker and backpacker. I love doing it alone. I love doing it with other women. I love doing it with my husband and other men, but I'm not going to give up hiking alone. And I don't think other women should. But There is a risk. Women are a higher risk of sexual violence, sexual motivated violence than men are. So some of the strategies I use, you know, I'm a former law enforcement and a nurse, so I kind of give off a, you know, I'm not prey attitude. So even if you have to fake it, try to put that costume on when you're out hiking. Another is, you know, I'm nice, but I'm not friendly. I'm not out there to get a date. I'm going to meet a guy who's very curious where I'm going and where I'm backpacking and I'll be friendly, but somewhat aloof and in the conversation quickly. And I don't tell him where I'm hiking or where I'm going. So in some of the men, I know that's hard for them because they're just, they're actually nice. Most of the men you meet out there are totally nice and they would totally help you if you were in trouble, but you don't know that when you meet them and some of the most dangerous guys can be the most charming. So put on an attitude. I'm not prey. I'm not here to go out on a date. Hi, bye, you know, have a nice trip. And I think that can help discourage a potential human predator, you know, from initiating further contact with you. But men get in trouble in the wilderness as well. Men have been victims of violence in the wilderness as well, especially the Appalachian Trail, for example, of through hikers. I believe it's five men have been murdered and five women. Uh, There are more men on the trail than women, but this is good advice for men as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, okay, here's what happens. There's something called the fear gender paradox where women are more afraid of going out in the woods, but a male, a solo male is more likely 
to not survive a perilous encounter than a solo female is. So it's probably because women, we have this angst, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, something bad's going to happen. And so we maybe go into it with a more cautious or expedition mindset where the male thinks he's fine, he can heal it. And so that puts him more at risk of trouble. So this advice goes for men as well. And I, also one thing I say to men, if you're meeting a woman on the trail and she acts a little aloof, don't take it personal. She's just trying to be safe. And I know you want her to be safe. So mm-hmm. that's one thing I like to say about that. Yeah. One thing I was surprised when I picked up your book and like started reading it is that the cases discussed in the book were primarily around men because I do consume a lot of true crime content and a lot of it does revolve around female victims. And so the fact that you were investigating more male victims was a little bit of a surprise to me. I mean, I know it does happen and it is interesting that paradox that you were explaining. So if we could just kind of like pivot into talking about the trail of the lost, if you don't mind, since that does revolve around true crime, why do you think that that was such an important case for you to investigate, especially since you had left law enforcement at this time when you were writing it? Great question. So when I was a ranger at Grand Canyon, I, you know, I often participated in searches for overdue hikers at many different levels. But one particular case, I was in charge of managing the day-to-day search operation. And this 20-something year old hiker had gone missing in the Grand Canyon. I didn't find him. And that is 1995, and that really bothered me. It haunted me. So 20 years later, an individual named Chris Sylvia, he's 28, and he goes missing on the Pacific Crest Trail. I learned about that case two years later in 2017. But he immediately reminded me of the hiker that disappeared the Grand Canyon that I failed to find. And so I just couldn't let it go. And I contacted his family and asked for their blessing to, you know, investigate the case. So they were happy to have me do that. And from that case, I met people who were trying to find two other hikers who were missing on the Pacific Crest Trail, uh, Chris Fowler from Washington and David O'Sullivan, also of Southern California. That's where Chris Sylvia disappeared. And that launched me into a whole nother world, the missing hiker world, how hard this is on families, some of the issues. You know, we talk about men getting in trouble in the wilderness. One of the sad things that happens is when you report a male overdue to law enforcement, they tend to blow it off a little bit. They think he's purposely like going on a bender or something, and they jump to that conclusion too quickly when their family's going, no, no, we know this guy, he's in trouble. And that happened a little bit, you know, with one of these cases. So there's a delay in the investigation that probably wouldn't have happened if it was a missing woman. So again, there's some nuances here with the genders and the outdoors of where your risk is. And I just really felt bad for their families. Official searchers were failing to find them and got hooked with a group of people who were as dedicated as I was to try to solve this mystery. Yeah, with all the different nuances in investigations in general, but specifically ones that are like disappearances in wilderness areas, how do law enforcement officers kind of determine which ones are just someone went missing or if someone like perhaps was involved in foul play? It's tricky, especially with the missing hiker, because if you don't have forensic evidence, you don't show up to a car, for example, there's a blood splattered all over it. You know, if you don't have that, someone's just said, hey, my friend is not back from his trip. You have to go. There's a lot of suspects and they're not all human. So that's what the park rangers did. But you should not rule out foul play until you have evidence to rule it out. But 
often what will pop up on the suspect list is, you know, you look at the weather, there was a big raging snowstorm. Well, that's going to be suspect number one. They got in trouble at a snowstorm. If there's something like Gabby Petito, for example, is a great example. There was suspicious circumstances from the get-go when she went missing. As I assume law enforcement was already looking at her boyfriend when she was reported missing. So that's what the search investigator looks at. What are the circumstances around this missing hiker case? But it is tricky. When a family is experiencing this, what is one way that they would be able to maybe like get law enforcement to take it more seriously, or especially if they think that they did this on their own volition, like they think the person just wanted a retreat or maybe left the family for good. Right. You know, and sometimes it happens, but it it doesn't matter. Search is an emergency. If your person is overdue. Now, one thing, what did the person last tell you? Did they say, you know, your loved one? Did they say, I'm going to be out Friday at 5 p.m. and then Monday I'm going to be at work? And if they don't show up at work, okay, we know there's a problem and we should assume this person needs help, that they didn't just run off. If they did run off, you know, the investigative process can maybe find that out. And so if the family is getting frustrated, first you have to find the right agency who has jurisdiction. It's off, but not always. If it's a national park, it's the park rangers and they hopefully they'll take it serious right away. If it's a national forest or state park, it is often going to be the county, the sheriff, where that person was last seen. And so once you've determined where that your person was last seen, like where their car is at the trailhead, you know, make a case. This is where they're last seen. They're supposed to be back by now. You need to open a missing persons investigation now. You might have to be assertive with them and present your case for why this person is missing and the response needs to be initiated. Yeah. And whenever I go out, especially on a solo hike or anything like that, I have like some pretty specific like information that I give people, like you mentioned before, like giving someone like a time when you're supposed to be back. Are there other things that are helpful if hikers give a loved one or leave in their car or anything like that? Yes. I think, you know, in aviation, they call it flight following. And so we're going to call it trek following. You should have someone in your circle of friends that's responsible and you tell them, you text it maybe. So it's in writing for them. Hey, I'm going backpacking for three days. If I'm not out by Saturday at 2 PM, there's a problem Call the law enforcement. And the other, you, you can leave a note in a car, but you know, we talk about violence with women. And so you don't want to leave a note in your car going, Hey, I'm, I'm a single woman and I'm backpacking here. You know, you're telling somebody where to go, but you could leave a note hidden in the car. That way, if law enforcement got in to investigate you because you're overdue, they would find the note. Also notes would be great. If I had a case that I worked where a gentleman ran out of gas in an extremely remote area near Death Valley. He left a note in his car, but it didn't say where he was going. He said, needs gas in the car, but we can't find him. And if he just said, I'm, I'm headed south down the road, see, we, we have a better chance of finding him. So try to leave clues for people where you're going, what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I want to ask more questions about the book, but I also want to avoid spoilers. So only share what you obviously think is relevant here. But what do you think readers could benefit from after like reading Trail of the Lost and understanding how you overview these disappearances? 
Yeah, I think one thing is, you know, nature doesn't suffer fools gladly. So there are dangers lurking out there. And so be aware of that as you go on a hike and be prepared for that. The other is take advantage of modern technology instead of letting it take advantage of you. And, you know, like this dangerous cliffside selfie, bad. The emergency GPS locator device, great. So, you know, think of things like that. And also most people out there, they're great. We call it on the PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail, it's called the Trambley, the trail family. There are people out there who will help you. You know, if you're lost at an intersection, wait until someone comes up and say, hey, do you have a map? Which way should we go? Most people out there are good. So during your coverage of the investigation in Trail of the Lost, what were your main things that you learned throughout the search process? Which it could have come from when you were a national park ranger and things were a little bit different coming from the outside or just general things that you learned because it had been several years later since you had left the force. Well, you know, I was a park ranger in the 90s. It was before smartphones. So I learned what an incredibly powerful investigative tool social media can be, particularly Facebook in this case. And in the book, you will see that the characters make some groundbreaking, twisty revelations through Facebook investigations. And I also, you know, I was an official professional trained searcher. I learned how effective volunteers can be. Our sheriffs search park rangers, they're overworked. They've got a lot of things they need to deal with. Searches are expensive. They can go on for days and weeks and months and they're timely. And there are other people that need help. So when an official closes, suspends a search, there's a hole there in non-government entities. One of them comes about from the book, the Fowler Sullivan Foundation. They can fill parts of that hole with uh, volunteer investigators, volunteer searchers, one real effective technique. It's a bit of a spoiler, so you could skip a minute if you want, but it's drones, using drones to solve cold case, missing hiker cases. So I've learned so much of what outside the government can be done on a search and also how it's needed. I also learned a lot about the emotional behind having someone who's missing, having a loved one's missing is horrible. It's called ambiguous loss and you don't know if they're alive or dead. You don't know what happened to them. It's one of the worst things that somebody can experience with a loved one going missing. Very difficult. And so I learned how hard that is for the families and that they need help and support through this process. And I believe volunteers and the government should play a role in facilitating ways to involve the families because it's therapeutic for them to be involved so they have some small sense of agency during this horrible thing that's happening to them. Yeah. And I would assume that the families are generally fairly helpful. I mean, in like helping you gather information about the person you're looking for and like their mindset and things like that. Yes, they are. And they can be incredibly gracious and helpful to other families of the missing while in the midst of their own horrible crisis. And they're smart and they are helpful in the process between them and the detective or the ranger should be collaborative to work together to try to find some resolution with the case. Was there anything in particular that you wanted to discuss regarding the book or the cases that you cover in the book? 
Yeah, well, there's so much. It's so um, much. <laughs> yeah, I know it's hard for me to like narrow down like what to I even know, talk about. I know it's it's a long book. I think, and we've talked about a lot of it already. But one thing I could be kind of jaded, you know, from my background. But this story gave me hope, and the characters in it, I just fell in love with them. They're so heroic and emotionally heroic to me because they really tried to help these families for nothing, nothing in return, absolutely nothing. And they even risk life and limb to help these families get resolution on their missing loved one. So that to me is one of the most powerful things that I learned while researching this book. Yeah, most people are good, like you said, (laughs) which I think is important to remember. Awesome. Well, how can listeners learn more about you, your work, and then also order a copy of your new book, Trail of the Lost? You can pre-order Trail of the Lost practically anywhere. Amazon, you go to your local favorite independent bookstore and pre-order it. That'd be great. To learn more about the cases, you can go to the Fowler Sullivan Foundation website. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter, and I have a web page. Also, I have a Facebook group called Missing on the Pacific Crest Trail. If you join that, you can stay updated on these cases and other missing hiker cases. I try to keep people updated on what's going on out there. And also ways to be safe on the trail, alert people to hazards out there. Awesome. I'll be sure to share the links to all of that in the show notes. And what day does Trail of the Lost actually become available at all stores? August 22nd, 2023. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andrea, for taking the time to sit down and chat. And the book is amazing. So I really hope that everyone checks it out and pre-orders today. Thanks for having me, Meg. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, let me know. Leave a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at outdoor.minimalist.book on YouTube, or subscribe to our weekly newsletter at theoutdoorminimalist.com. For even more updates, other educational resources, and to help build an outdoor community with the shared goal to create a better outdoor space as we recreate.